Hey y'all, how's it going? I'm Scott Horton. I guess you know that. Probably. Alright, so, um, you know, I got an email from a guy suggesting that maybe I could uh, make a little bit of money if I would, uh, at the end of my interviews, answer listener questions and this kind of thing. And I thought, yeah, good point, but I'm going to make it different. What I'm going to do is, um, I'm not going to charge anybody any money. Obviously, you guys can donate, and uh, those of you who do, I appreciate it. Um, But what I'm going to do is, I'm going to put out a little podcast answering listener questions uh, on the full show feed uh, from back when I had a live show last year and all the years before that. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, make use of it feel kind of silly just sitting talking to myself for no reason at all. But if you guys are ask, asking me questions and I'm answering them, then that seems okay. So that's what I'm going to do and give you, you know, updates on what's going on and everything. So um, I guess probably at least some of you are interested uh, to know. Some of you have asked, uh, what is the deal with the book? And the deal with the book is I started to write an anti-war book about the whole terror war with Tom Woods. And basically what was going to happen is I was going to write the whole thing and then he's going to rewrite it. And uh, then what happened was I got bogged down in the Afghan quagmire. Hardy har har. And my chapter two about Afghanistan turned into a whole book. So now it's, you know, 200 and something pages, 250 or some kind of thing. I don't know. Um, and so, but it's almost done. I mean, I really just have a few more footnotes to do and... One more round of copy editing, and I think it's pretty much done, guys. So it should be just, you know, hopefully within a few weeks um, that I'll be able to start putting it out. Although, yeah, I may be dreaming, but, you know, I'd like to do it by the end of the month. Uh, go ahead and have the Afghanistan book out. And then what's going to happen is I'm going right back to work on the rest of it. Only this time I'm not going to lose sight of my uh, goal. I'm going to try to keep it as brief as I possibly can. In other words, it's going to be like a talk radio host book. I'm going to make a bunch of assertions, and the footnotes will prove it, but I'm not really going to demonstrate. It's going to be like a Hannity thing. I've never read a Hannity book, but I assume it's just a bunch of ridiculous assertions. Well, my assertions are going to be correct, but I'm going to be very brief, and I'm going to try to stick to my narrative and not get all so encompassing. Not so all-encompassing as I have with this Afghanistan thing. I don't know. Writing a book is hard, man. Anyway. So the Tom Woods project thing is still happening, but I'm going ahead and putting out my own Afghanistan book uh, here in just a little while. All right, so uh, I think that's all I got to say about that. Um, so questions. I guess first of all on Russia. A guy on Twitter last night is going, but man, everyone seems to agree. Except you. Everyone is saying Russia has got this huge influence operation. They're doing all these things. And yet you're saying all of it is ridiculous. But I think that makes you the ridiculous one, right? And I think, you know what, maybe he does have a point that even though they're the ones with the fantastic claims, the fact that the claims are ubiquitous means that the truth is the outrageous position. And so the burden of proof is on me to disprove the accusations against Russia. And all I can do is point out that none of the accusations against Russia are proven. Not that they hacked the election, not that they are the source of the DNC and Podesta email leak to WikiLeaks. That's not proven. 
It's not proven that uh, their conversations with uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions or uh, former uh, National Security Advisor Mike Flynn were in any way truly nefarious or undermining American policy or even improper in any way. The whole fake news scare, that wasn't the Russians at all. And that didn't tilt the election either. The only people who believe that crap are people who were all voting for Trump anyway. Pope endorses Trump. You have to be a Trump supporter to believe that. No one else is going to believe that. They had, remember, for months, oh, the fake news. We're going to have to regulate your news now. You're going to have to, oh, Facebook is going to have to be deputized to put big warning labels on what you should believe or not. Because Vladimir Putin stole the election from Hillary that way, and yet... You read into it, read the New York Times, and they admit that, nah, actually these guys were children, teenagers, not children, teenagers in Macedonia, making money. Here's a profile of a kid in Boulder who figured out he could make a lot of money with Google Ads if he just came up with a couple of fake news stories and some credible-looking mastheads and tell stories that Trump people want to hear, basically. They'll retweet it. They'll share it on Facebook, and he can make some Google Ad money. That's it. The whole thing is a big fake hoax. There's nothing to it at all. And then on the serious accusations that Russia is, you know, that Vladimir Putin is the new czar and he's trying to recreate the old Russian empire or anything like that. There's no evidence of that at all. All the worst accusations about him uh, are the ones that are true are about uh, Russia's activities, so to speak, in Ukraine and in Syria. And yet both of those are places where America picked the fight. As every listener of this show already knows, hopefully. Um, and a lot of people ask me, where should I read about Ukraine? Consortiumnews.com. I don't know if you guys know this trick. What you do is you put in Google or whatever your favorite search engine is. You put in site colon and then whatever website you want. You don't need the W's or the HTTP. You just go site colon consortiumnews.com space Ukraine. And it'll search only consortiumnews.com. It's better than using any website's internal search feature. You know, you want to just go ahead and use the search engine to really crawl the thing. You just go site colon consortiumnews.com space Ukraine. Or if you want to focus on the coup, Ukraine coup. And then you'll find all the best stuff by Robert Perry and Ray McGovern and all them. That's really the, if there's one place you need to go, then yeah. If you want to hear my interviews about it, you just go site scotthorton.org Ukraine. Or especially if you want to go, you, what you should do is cite scotthorton.org slash interviews space Ukraine. And don't need quote marks or anything. And that'll pull up what you want. Um, and just the thing of it is, and people, I've, I've seen people say, no one's ever actually accused me of this to me, but I've seen where people have accused me in other contexts, say, oh, yes, Scott Horton, Vladimir Putin's greatest defender, or something like that. But I don't think I've ever actually in my life defended Vladimir Putin at all. I mean, to me, he's a conservative Republican right-wing nationalist, and I hate conservative Republican right-wing nationalists. I'm just saying that the truth is the truth, and his Russian Federation empire is not an expansionist one. It just isn't. And the only reason they seized Crimea without killing anyone, by the way, was because America was threatening to take their Sevastopol last warm water port away from them. And, you know, Crimea had belonged to Russia since they took it from the Tatars back in the days of Catherine the Great 
in the days before the American Constitution, in the days of the Articles of Confederation, the 1780s. And it was only communist dictator Khrushchev in the 50s who gifted it to Ukraine because that's where he was from and he was drunk one night. That's the story. He was drunk and said, oh, Crimea belongs to Ukraine now. But it didn't make any difference because everybody was answerable only to the Kremlin. It was the Soviet communist dictatorship. It didn't matter. It didn't make any difference. Well, after the Cold War ended, the Russians maintained a lease with the Ukrainians. We'll pay you money and you let us have and let us keep our Sevastopol uh, Pole naval base there. And they did. And that was the deal from 1991 through 2014. Well, what happened in 2014? Russia seized Crimea. But what happened earlier in 2014? America overthrew the government in Kiev for the second time in 10 years. And as my guest James Carden was saying on the show, you can hear the archive, uh, he was explaining just the other day, and this had gone overlooked by me, that major politicians after the coup d'etat said that the first thing they should do is deny the continued lease to the Russians. So Putin wasn't just anticipating that this might be a problem. It already was becoming a problem. And I'm not justifying necessarily the seizure of Crimea. It's just that, one, I don't care. And two, it was America's fault for picking that fight. Full stop. All you have to do is Google F the EU. And there's Victoria Nuland, the American ambassador to the EU, basically. She's the assistant secretary of state for European affairs. And there she is on the phone with the American ambassador to Ukraine plotting the coup. Caught red-handed. The only thing she says F the EU about is that they're taking too long to foment this coup and we want them to hurry their asses up. That's it. And go read it yourself. And anyway, and then of course, what happened in Syria was that at the end of 2015... The CIA's al-Qaeda terrorists were so close to Damascus and had severed the highway between Aleppo and Damascus that Putin finally intervened full scale on Assad's side and started bombing their asses. Well, that's your fault, America, for having a CIA that supports al-Qaeda terrorists. Literally sworn loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York City. Fact. So... I'm not for Russia bombing anyone, and absolutely, they've slaughtered civilians. Civilians have been blown apart, just like when Americans bomb cities with planes. Civilians die, and it's a nightmare. And yet, the reality is, you have to look at the larger context. America started this trouble, and, you know, I'm not going to go all the way back to the clean break, but whatever. Yeah, read The Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm. Read Dan Sanchez at Antiwar.com a couple of years ago. Wrote a great couple of reviews of A Clean Break and Coping with Crumbling States by David Wormser. And this is the policy. How to destroy the Middle East so that all these stupid Arab tribes fight each other forever and leave Israel alone. That's basically the policy, kids. Um, so that's what Russia's doing there is they're worried about Al-Qaeda because they actually live in Eurasia, not safe over here in North America where it's really actually hard to get here. Syria really is their backyard and they actually have to worry about the rise of Jabhat al-Nusra there and what's going to be the consequence of the rise of and then the disillusion of the Islamic State. So 
I, mean, I don't even think the Russian state should exist at all. I think Putin should cut his own guts out with a sword and fall down dead. I don't care about him. I don't care about Russia's interests at all. All I'm doing is defending the truth from a bunch of liars. And the context that you can't see, apparently, I don't know what's wrong with you people. The context is there's a Cold War afoot, even though the Soviet Union is gone. It died permanent death on Christmas Day, 1991. You might call it a miracle. Soviet communism, gone, for real. And all the scare, they're like, no, they're just biding their time and before they come back. No, man. They pulled their troops back 1,000 miles to the east. They set Eastern European society free. I mean, not that they all set themselves free. Uh, they, they didn't set them free. They, they granted them independence. Freedom is another issue. But the Soviet Union is gone. But guess what's not gone? The American Empire. And the American Empire has been pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And here I'll quote, because I have it right here. Um, there's, um, and I've mentioned this to you guys before. What you got to do is you got to go back to um, uh, 1998 when Thomas Friedman wrote in the New York Times, you just Google uh, 1998 Thomas Friedman Kennan or Mr. X. And so the article is about, and now a word from Mr. X or just X. And what that's a reference to is that George Kennan was the foreign policy so-called brilliant genius graybeard back uh, CFR man back at the dawn of the Cold War who wrote an anonymous article for foreign affairs that said we need to have a Cold War and a containment policy against the Soviet Union. And, of course, he was the dove, in a sense, compared to those who wanted to go ahead and start a nuclear war and roll back Soviet communism. And so it was sort of Kennan versus Nitsa and this kind of thing, and we got more of a Nitsa policy than a Kennan one. But anyway, Kennan was this, you know, like Brzezinski or Kissinger, this very well-respected centrist you know, Rockefellerite, foreign policy, maven, or whatever the hell, okay? And here he is, Mandarin, how about that? And here he is telling Tom Friedman in 1952 that, oh man, we sh what did I say? 52 is, I, it was right in front of my eyeballs. Um, in 1998, he's telling Tom Friedman, damn, we should not be expanding NATO. Bill Clinton should not be bringing Poland into NATO. We should not be expanding NATO in any way, doing any of this stuff. And he says... Of course, there is going to be a bad reaction from Russia. And then the NATO expanders will say that we always told you that is how the Russians are. But that is just wrong. So, Kennan wins this argument because he wins it before the fact. This is him telling you exactly what's going to happen. You know, I was making fun of Strobe Talbot today. I'm going on too long, sorry. But Strobe Talbot... Uh, used to work for Bill Clinton, was national security advisor for Bill Clinton for a while. Uh, tried to get him confirmed as CIA director, but it didn't work. But anyway, Strobe Talbot is the guy who wrote in 1992 during the Clinton campaign um, that it's the birth of the global nation. And soon America and Russia and everyone else will respect one single global authority, the federal government of the United Nations over the planet. Straight up, new world order, one world communism, only administrated by us. So, more like a one world fascism, if you please. But in alliance with Russia, and the great white army of the North, 
ruling over the whole planet. That's what Strobe Talbot wanted. And the whole time that Strobe Talbot in the 1990s was the single greatest champion of NATO expansion in pushing Bill Clinton to do it, he reassured everyone that this is not about encircling Russia or pressuring Russia. We want to invite Russia into NATO. It's a one-world army. It's to be the one-world army of the United Nations. And it's going to be in alliance with them. And so they started with the NATO-Russia Council. Remember that? But the problem was, and this is what I learned from Gilbert Doctorow just back a couple of interviews ago, was that it was Kissinger, who I thought was Mr. Kingpin of the one world government at the time. It was Kissinger who helped to scotch all this and to say, no, the purpose of NATO is to be the enemy of Russia. And to encircle Russia, to keep Russia down. They are not the West. They are not us. They might look white, but they're, you know, not close enough to our society. And by the way, we don't want to have to share power with them inside in this new alliance. So, no. Yeah, there's a one world government. It's based in Washington, D.C., not New York City or Brussels. And the Russians are just going to have to learn to like it. And so they dropped the NATO-Russia Council. All that got frustrated. And NATO expansion continued, only now no longer under the guise that, yes, we're going to be allies with Russia, and so it's okay. Now we've expanded, and Pat Buchanan is the only person I ever hear besides myself say this, and I'm, I don't know if I ever figured this out myself before I read him say it, but it's the only point that I think matters here. We used to argue, and when Pat says it, we, he means he includes himself as part of the Nixon administration and the Reagan administration. They very truly drew the line at the Elbe River, halfway across Germany. And they told the Soviets, if you roll your tanks into Western Europe, into Western Germany, if you threaten, or for that matter, you attack Berlin in, wholly inside East Germany, But especially if you roll into Western Germany across the Elbe River, you threaten Western Germany, France, Denmark, the Netherlands, any of these Western democracies, we will go to nuclear war against you. We absolutely will not tolerate you coming into Western Germany. But anything you do to the Poles or the Hungarians or the Czechs, we can scold you, but we're not going to intervene because we just can't. It's just not our interest. It's too far away from our interests. And are we really going to die for the Hungarians, we're going to have a nuclear war to force the Soviets to back off the Hungarians. No, we're not. As Pat Buchanan says, this is what Ike Eisenhower decided. This is what Lyndon Johnson decided. This is what Ronald Reagan decided when the Soviets were horribly oppressing the Hungarians, the Czechs, and the Poles. Sorry, guys. But now look, now we've expanded NATO's eastern border all the way to Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia's eastern border. That is Russia's western border, not the Soviet Union, Russia's western border. And by the way, their capital city is only a couple of hundred miles from the border, two or three hundred miles from the border. So, in other words, it's vulnerable. And by the way, maybe you don't know history. Uh, I don't know it well enough, but I do know that Russia's been invaded 20 times over. By virtually everyone. And they're extremely paranoid. And have reason to be. And here the Americans are saying not only the Baltics, but now we want to bring in Ukraine too. 
and we want to kick the Russians out of the Sevastopol naval base. And then people want to pretend like this is the rise of the Russian Empire rather than reaction to the American one. And now look at the scandal with Trump. Oh, Sessions this and Mike Flynn that. Hacked the election. All of it's hot air. None of it's about Mike Flynn. None of it's about Jeff Sessions. None of it's about Jared Kushner. That's the latest. Oh my God, Kushner had a meeting. What was the meeting about? Establishing means of communication. That's the line. Read it in the New York Times. Oh my God, Jared Kushner had a meeting with the Russians for the purposes of establishing a basis of communications? Now, back in Al-Qaeda is one thing, but this is treason. Huh. Um, what it's about is an agenda for this Cold War. What it's about is the one thing that Trump is good on is he wants to get along with Russia. Probably like Strobe Talbot in a former life because he looks at them and says, hey, they're white like us. We should join forces and be the one world army of the north. Um... But anyway, yeah, Talbot's the biggest anti-Russia hawk now because just like Kennan said, yeah, you're going to blame Russia when this blows up in your face and that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah, we told you that's how the Russians are. In fact, Strobe Talbot has a piece today at Defense One about all the times that Russia has tried to interfere in American business. This is just how they are, man. Took the words right out of Kennan's mouth in the old accusation. And anyway, um, yeah, if you look at my uh, my Twitter feed, I have a couple of screenshots there there's there's another one other than that mr x article in the new york times about kennan there's one that's it's actually jerry brown governor jerry brown of california his review of william perry's book about nuclear war and uh in his review of that book he talks about how in 1996 that george kennan and paul nitza and robert mcnamara Kennedy and Johnson's Secretary of Defense, uh, Mr. Vietnam War, the guy who was in great part responsible for Korea and World War II atrocities as well. Um, or at least World War II. I'm forgetting if he was a Korea burn them all the death guy too. Anyway, these guys were major hawks and they, they had Senator Bradley and a couple of others with them too. But anyway, I mean, the important point being what I think is the most important point is these three, um, Kennan, Nitza, and McNamara, even. Oh, and Richard Pipes, too, said, don't expand NATO. Richard Pipes, the historian of Soviet atrocities, uh, said, don't do this. And that should be all you need to know. You know, when, when Bill Clinton did this, and William Perry, his own Secretary of Defense, who's, you know, the ultimate wonk, on nuclear weapons policy. That's how he got the job as Secretary of Defense. And the fact that Bill Clinton did this over William Perry's dead body, I mean, that ought to just be the biggest scandal in the world. But, you know, I think everybody just assumed, oh, the Russians, we're friends with them now. So nobody knew that, you know, regular people didn't really realize what a controversy this was and what trouble this was. And I guess these men must have seen through the ruse that, yeah, we're going to do this Russian-NATO council and ally with them. And, and I think they already saw that that's not going to happen. The Americans are not going to be willing to share power with the Russians to that degree. After all, 
our militaries, you know, what are they going to go to? Standard issue NATO rounds and this kind of thing. They're just going to change their whole military, start buying all American weapons. They're not going to do that. Maintaining their own arms industry is the first order of their national defense strategy. You know, come on. So. And then, of course, you had the American and NATO interventions in Bosnia and especially in Kosovo, the bombing of Serbia in 1999 to uh, break off Kosovo to be an independent gangster state, uh, you know, certainly was against Russia's interests, the Slavic and Russian-allied Serbs uh, picking the fight with them at the time and taking the side of a bunch of bin Laden's men back then, too, in Bosnia and in Kosovo. In fact, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed uh, earned his stripes as a legit Mujahideen guy in Bosnia. I forget if he had, I think he was too late for Afghanistan in the 80s. He was a Bosnia guy, Ramzi Youssef's uncle. Uh, Worked for Bill Clinton there. Uh, Anyway, that's the trouble with Russia. Uh, Vladimir Putin, yeah, he's a horrible Republican bastard, but, you know, his country has the gross domestic product of the Netherlands, of Manhattan Island. When America keeps uh, ratcheting up the Cold War, the Russians are cutting their defense budget. On one hand, because they just have to. But on the other hand, that they're trying to send the signal too. That look, we already spend one-tenth on our military what you guys spend. But we don't want to play this brinksmanship game. We don't want to ratchet it up. If anything, what they're doing is they're rationing it up on the cheap. Which means making nuclear weapons more usable. Because they don't have the money for the infantry to fight a conventional war. So anyway, as you should all know already, of course this is all America's fault. Of course, virtually everything going on that at least pertains to us in the world is a fight that our government picked. You know, stop being ignorant. And stop going, oh, where? It's America. You're blaming America. I'm blaming George Bush and Bill Clinton and George Bush's son and Barack Obama and Bill Clinton's wife. If you take that personally, then you're the one with the problem, not me, dude. Oh, and I'm also blaming all the people who worked for them and did what they said. But yeah. All right. And then one more question I'll do real quick. Sorry I spent too much time on that. Another guy asked me on Twitter. He said, you know, my friend said that we didn't really lose Afghanistan and Iraq. And my answer to that is just, well, look at the goals. The goal in in Afghanistan, presumably, was to catch al-Qaeda, which they didn't do. All they did was let them escape. Osama lived more or less as a free man for another decade after that. And their secondary goal was to completely marginalize the Taliban out of power. They refused to negotiate with them in any way. And you know, tried to set up this system where a coalition of minorities rule over the plurality Pashtun population of the country. They've been at it for 16 years and have completely and totally failed to pull it off. And of course, the result being that the only, to this day, the only real organized political and or military power to represent the Pashtun tribes in the country is guess who? The Taliban and their allies in the Haqqani network and Hizbi Islami and all that. Uh, that's uh, Hekmatyar's group there. And so the Taliban now rule the entire south of the country. They rule all of Pashtunistan 
other than Kandahar City and Lashkargah and, you know, the places where you have, you know, massed population and a huge government military presence. But they rule the whole countryside and all the suburbs, too. America lost. The surge didn't work. The current Afghan war commander says, I need thousands more troops to break this stalemate. He ought to be concerned that the 10,000 troops he does have will be enough to protect their own force. They could, now I'm not predicting this is necessarily going to happen, but it is within the realm of possibility that they could have a fall of Saigon type moment where Taliban, Haqqani, and Hizbi Islami type forces just march into Kabul and say, what, we're the government now. I mean, if they come in huge armored columns, then American drones will take them out. But if they just walk in, you know, CNN reported not long ago that American officials and NGO employees and those kind of guys, they don't even go from place to place in the capital city of Kabul in cars anymore. They take helicopters everywhere they go in the capital. So, yeah, big victory. And then you look at Iraq. The long story of Iraq, short, is that America fought a civil war for the Shiite side, for Iran's friends' side, for eight years. And what they succeeded in doing then was giving the capital city to the Shiite majority and ending the Sunni minority rule of the Shiites and the Kurds in the capital and pushing the Sunnis out of the capital and into the arms of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, which had never existed in Iraq before the war. Um, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi had told bin Laden, no, I don't want to be in your group. I want to fight the king of Jordan, not America. Screw you. And then it was only literally a year and a half into the war. A year and a half. In the fall of 2004, that Zarqawi finally uh, pledged al-Bayat, or however you say it, Bayat, uh, his oath of allegiance to Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda's goals. And that was the birth of al-Qaeda in Iraq. A year and a half into the war. A year and a half into the occupation. And then al-Qaeda in Iraq is the group that grew up to fight on Obama's side. He fought on theirs in the Syria war which is what led to the riot, and they had already renamed themselves the Islamic State of Iraq. And then they worked together with the Syrians in al-Nusra, and they were sort of part of al-Nusra, and then they split off. So we want to go ahead and create our caliphate now. That was the Iraqi faction, the Iraqi-dominated faction of the Islamic State of Iraq, which is just al-Qaeda in Iraq. So yeah, there was a victory in Iraq, all right. The Ayatollah Khamenei, And the Ayatollah Sistani and their allies in the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution, the Bada Brigade, Muqtad al-Sadr and his Mahdi army, the Asayb al-Al-Haq and these other Shiite militia death squads, and Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri and uh, their servant Golani and his men who uh, got to lose but fight for years in a giant civil war in Syria. They're not gone yet. And Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was um, a member of al-Qaeda in Iraq, who's now its leader and is now 
you know, led the break off the split in 2013 and the creation of the Islamic State. And for even up to this day, uh, is the leader of the so-called caliphate, the Islamic State. I mean, it's true that they've lost to Crete and Ramadi and Fallujah. They're down to two cities, and really they're down to just western Mosul right now and of Raqqa, so they're certainly on the run. Um, but for a time, this guy was the dictator of a country bigger and more populous than Great Britain. Bigger and more populous than half the states in the United Nations. So, yeah, uh, Osama bin Laden, as our late wonderful friend Jeff Huber said was dead and loving it by 2011 because as well Michael Scheuer as long as I'm quoting people Michael Scheuer the former chief of the bin Laden unit said because America's foreign policy is Al-Qaeda's indispensable ally simple as that what did America win out of the war in Iraq what what could anyone possibly say that the surge worked when all the surge worked at was helping Badr and Sadr kick the last of the Sunnis out of the capital city, depriving them of their last incentive to cooperate with or compromise with the Sunnis in any way. And you know, Obama, they go, oh, boo-hoo, Obama pulled out of Iraq. Yeah, you know what he also did? He intervened in the election of 2010. That Maliki lost. That Iyad Alawi, the Shiite yet Baathist, former agent of the CIA, former agent of Saddam Hussein, he was in the best position to negotiate a compromise solution. He was a former Baathist, but a Shiite. And his group won the election. They had the first opportunity under the Constitution to form a government. But Obama, just like George Bush did the same thing, you know, back years before, so this isn't particular to Obama, it's the the U.S. over this whole war sided with Iran and made it a, a compromise with Iran to keep Maliki. Maliki, who had done everything to tell the Sunnis to get bent. Go burn out in the desert and see if I care. Don't need you no more. You don't have any power I got to deal with anymore, so screw you guys, which just was the final push of them into the arms of Baghdadi and the Islamic State. So... As always, it's intervention, not non-intervention, not the fact that we ever would dare to pull back in any way, but it's the invading the country in the first place, fighting the war in the first place, intervening in their politics in the first place that makes everything worse and worse and worse. Now look what's happened. Now we're helping the Shiite militias take Mosul. Well, what's going to be the aftermath of that? Are they going to pull back and let all the Sunni population come home and, and keep that city? Or we're just going to trust the Shiite militias are going to be a bunch of angels the way they treat these people occupying now way far out from Shiite lines in another land. We're going to be dealing with the consequences of the latest war against the consequences of the war before that until God knows when. It's amazing that anybody thinks that Iraq was anything but a catastrophe. And in fact... There never has been any accountability for this. There never was the big, hey, we got to admit it day. But if you listen to the media and you listen to the politicians, they pretty much admit it now that, yeah, shouldn't have done that. Yeah, got that right. 
as though Saddam Hussein was any threat to the international order whatsoever. If George W. Bush had said to uh, Saddam, look, we're going to go back to the Reagan years where you work for us and your mission is you keep Al-Qaeda down and you don't mess with the Kuwaitis or whatever. You do basically as you're told. You give Bechtel a contract and we won't kill you. Yeah, George Schultz, man, he needs his Bechtel contracts, doesn't he? You do, you obey and we won't kill you. He could have done that. And of course, Saddam Hussein did offer everything. Do you know that? It was in the New York Times about how, way after the fact, about how Richard Pearl went to London and met with one of Saddam's men. And he said, listen, if this is about weapons, you can send in the army, the CIA, and the FBI to look everywhere for weapons. We don't have them. And if this is really about a dictatorship, we'll hold elections, man. I mean, you guys got to understand we're under some pressures here, but we will hold elections. We'll, we'll work on democracy, man, if that's what you want. If this is about the oil, you can have mineral rights. I don't care about that. You guys can do whatever you want. He didn't even know what the war was about. <laughs> whatever it is that you guys are pretending is your problem, dude, I'll cooperate. Osama bin Laden, believe me, I'll help you kill him if we can find him. What the hell? No friend of mine. Let's do it. And you know what Richard Pearl told Saddam Hussein's man? Tell Saddam, we'll see you in Baghdad. Surrender, not good enough. That was long before the 48-hour speech. So there you go. Yeah, no, your friend who said that that worked out, he was wrong. All right, so I've gone on way too long here. Thanks, you guys, for tolerating me. I hope you liked it. If anybody else has any questions, send them to me on Twitter or send them to me in the email, and I'll try to make a thing out of this if you want. All right, thanks.